Well, hey, it's great to be with you again this week, and you want to grab your Bibles uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes as we finish out our seven-week flyover of this great Old Testament book of literature. And before we get running, I want to say one last word of greeting to our friends up in Squamish, B.C. at the Rock Church. Uh, you have been joining us. They have been joining us this last couple months as Pastor Glenn Davies and his wife Janice have been away on a much-deserved sabbatical break. And so it's been our privilege to be able to serve you in these couple months. We hope and pray that uh, it has been a blessing to you. And we want to just let you know that we pray for you. Uh, we are excited about the work of the ministry that you're involved in there in Squamish as a sister church and as, and as a partner with us in the gospel. And so God bless you. It's been great to have you with us in these last couple months. Seven weeks ago, I got the chance to introduce this series, and today I get to wrap it up. And I'll just say buckle up, because there's a lot of material to cover as we bring this book to a conclusion. Uh, I'm happy for the opportunity, because the last chunk of this text is intensely practical. It calls for a, a, a response. You can't read and listen and ponder the words of the teacher and shrug your shoulders and walk away. The text leaves us with a challenge. I've chosen four little words, and yeah, hats off to John Piper, stole his title, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. In many ways, Ecclesiastes is like getting a cup of cold water thrown in your face. It is a bit of a shocking experience. I like how Eugene Peterson wrote about this book. Uh, he said before his death, Ecclesiastes is a John the Baptist kind of book. It functions not as a meal, but as a bath. It is not nourishment, it is cleansing. It is repentance, it is purging. We read Ecclesiastes to get scrubbed clean from illusion and sentiment. It is an expose and a rejection of every arrogant and ignorant expectation that we can live our lives by ourselves on our own terms. The author's cool skepticism clears the air. A refreshing negation to the lush and seductive suggestions swirling around us, promising everything but delivering nothing. And once the air is cleared, we're ready for reality, for God. Stated very succinctly, Ecclesiastes says to us, life makes no sense without God. Now, you can reject that statement if you want. You can argue with it. You can deny it. You can debate it. But the teacher says, I've tasted it all. I've tried it all. And my conclusion in one word, smoke. Meaningless. Life under the sun, apart from God, is like chasing after and trying to grab hold of the wind. Meaningless. It's shocking to have someone look you in the face and say, more money will not satisfy you. More education will not satisfy you. Fame, fortune, power, pleasure will not ultimately satisfy you. When they are the drivers of so much in our culture today. But if you will include God in the equation, everything changes. Suffering and sorrows will not destroy us. And the blessings and delights of this life that are so awesome and they are, do not define us. 
The life that we are living is greater than simply the here and now. In the closing chapters, uh, chapters 11 and 12, we hear this clarion call, don't waste your life. And specifically, these words are pointed towards a young adult, a call directed straight at those who are young. Is there an application for children? Is there an application for older adults? Of course there is. Because as Timothy tells us, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for teaching, correcting, training, rebuking. Uh, all of those things are profitable to us. But specifically in this context, there is a young adult audience in mind. In fact, I'm prepared to say that if you're under age 30, you should be very interested in the content of Ecclesiastes. There are three people involved in the writing of this book. There is the teacher himself who does the majority of speaking. There is a narrator, and then there is the audience. The teacher, of course, the preacher, Kohelet, pens the majority of this book. In the first person, I, the preacher, but the narrator who writes the epilogue and the uh, postlogue, the first 11 verses and the last six verses of the book. But there is also then a third character, a very important person to take note of. It is the audience. It is the intended recipient of this book. And if you look at chapter 12, verse 12, you will see these two very important little words. Be warned, my son. My son. It tells us who the narrator has in mind and who he is writing to. And if you look back at chapter 11, verse 9, you see this phrase, you who are young, be happy while you are young. And the particular word used there for young would be what today we would say young adult. It is not the word for little boy or child, but for a young man who is stepping into the prime years of health and strength. It's translated in other spots as choice young men, strong, vigorous young men. It's used of young warriors. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 29, the glory of the young men is their strength. Gray hair is the splendor of the old. Uh, Isaiah 40, 31 is a passage that many of you will have heard before. We sing a song based on this text, that even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. That phrase there, young men shall fall exhausted, it's like even the strong young men get tired? Yes, they do. And so as we close this book off, my plea to you is this, that if you're young, Listen carefully to the words of the teacher. When we opened the book seven weeks ago, I stole an illustration from the cemetery. I said, if you go walk through a cemetery and you read the tombstones and you see the date of birth and the date of death, date of birth, date of death. And between each of those, there is this tiny little hyphen, this dash, and that that dash represents the entirety of our life. And ask the question, how is it that we make sense out of this little dash of time that we've been given, or as the teacher calls it, this breath of smoke, this morning mist that passes away so quickly? Those of us who are older know how quickly life flies by. I remember about a decade ago, our family gathered to celebrate my mom's 80th birthday. We're sitting on her front yard, having a bit of a party. And in the midst of that, she pulls out a poem that she wrote about her life. And I don't remember all of that poem, but I remember this theme. 
The poem said basically, you look at me and you see an old woman on the outside. But on the inside, I'm still 29 years old. I still think like I used to think. I still want to do the things I used to do. I'm young on the inside. You see, we know how quickly life flies by. And as we close this book, think of those four little words, don't waste your life. Ecclesiastes leaves this challenge. Will you honor your creator with your life? Will you listen to the wisdom the teacher offers? And then will you step into the decisions of today with resolve, conviction, intentionality? In fact, as you're reading this chunk of scripture, it almost sounds like words that shouldn't be in the Bible. They sound almost worldly. You only go around once, so go for the gusto. There are no do-overs, no second chances, no mulligans, just one life, so don't waste it. Don't screw it up, don't sleep through it, don't dawdle around, grab this life by the collar, rustle it to the ground, and drain every ounce of life out of every day that you have been given, knowing that you will give an account for the way that you have lived your life. I want to start at the end of the book, the last few verses, and then circle back into chapter 11. So if you've got your Bibles, follow along. I want to start reading at chapter 12, verse 9. And it says, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So the conclusion is straightforward. Listen up, my son. You have had the chance to sit at the feet of one of the world's wisest men. He has done the heavy lifting for you. He has examined all that life has to offer, and he has searched out the very best words and phrases to summarize his learnings, and these teachings are trustworthy. They are directive words. They are strong words. In fact, he says they're literally like firmly embedded nails. They will support a heavy load. In other words, you can build your life on these words. And the closing argument, chapter 12, verse 13, Fear God and keep His commandments. And so that's the conclusion that we are headed toward. It's where the plane is going to land. But if you back it up to chapter 11, the preacher is starting his descent. He is circling the airport, he's making his approach, and he is giving some provocative final words. And he uses, or I'm going to use, two phrases to frame our conversation this morning. And it is this, get your boats in the water and live like today was your last. Get your boats in the water and live like today was your last. We're going to spend most of our time on that first thought, putting our boats out on the water. Follow along in Ecclesiastes 11, the first six verses. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. 
you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. The teacher is starting to draw his conclusion that life under the sun has a lot of mystery. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. Some ventures turn out and others not so much. So how do we make rhyme or reason out of the joys and sorrows of this earthly life? And so what are we to do? Just shrug our shoulders and sit back in resignation and say, well, I guess I'll just let life pass me by. No, the teacher says. No, in fact, precisely the opposite. Get your boats in the water and get your plows in the field. Now you're thinking, what are you talking about? Well, the teacher grabs a couple metaphors that would have made sense to the first ears to hear it. In those days, just like in ours, so much of the world's economy and wealth is tied up in the shipping industry. And because we live close to the ocean, in fact, specifically just next door to Canada's largest seaport, we have an up-close and personal relationship with the world economy. You cannot walk around the seawall of Stanley Park and stand there under the Lionsgate Bridge and not be aware of the fact that the world is coming and going. Ships passing under that bridge from 170 nations from around the world. The Port of Vancouver employs nearly 120,000 workers. Their payroll every year is some $7 billion. And the value of goods that go under that bridge every year is about $240 billion worth of trade. You see, in the ancient times when this book was written, there were two challenging options. If you lived in the Middle East where this was written, and you wanted to get your goods to the world's market from the Middle East, you had two choices, by land or by sea. You could travel the Silk Road over the Himalayas, or you could sail around the tip of Africa by boat long before, 2,000, 2,500 years before the Suez Canal was dug. Interesting that this week the Suez Canal is on the nightly news because it's all jammed up. Both of those routes had dangers, but one had far greater reward. You see, you could buy some horses, some mules, some camels, and you could load up as much as they would carry, and they would head out east over the mountains or south down through the desert. But there were robbers along the pathway. There were many dishonest traders who might steal away with your goods. The animals themselves might die. The load would be too heavy or the road was too long. Or you could build or buy passage on a ship. And on a ship, you can load in a hundred times, maybe a thousand times more than what that caravan of horses could carry on land. 
And on top of that, ships don't get sick and die along the road. And ships don't have to be fed and watered every day. And ships don't have to stop and rest every night along the trail. Now you have know, of course, that there are other dangers. The goods could still be stolen. Uh, the crew on the boat could steal some, I suppose, but also the whole ship could be captured by pirates. Or in a worst case scenario, the ship could sink to the bottom of the ocean in a great storm. But when a ship returned from the world's market, which might take a three year round trip in those days, there was great profit, great benefit, great gain. And the point is this, that great profit comes with great risk. The nations that embraced sea trade prospered. And even to today, landlocked nations are far poorer than nations that have access to the sea. You look at the nations of Central Europe, the landlocked nations of Central Africa, where they do not have access to the ocean, life is much harder. And what I hear the preacher saying is simply this, ships are safe when they're anchored in the harbor, but that is not what ships were built for. Ships are built for the high seas. And just so your life was not intended to be lived in dry dock for any period of time. Now, there's a second illustration. For those of you who say, I hate the seas. You don't like seafood. You like your feet firmly planted on the soil. None of this world travel and exotic ports and hurricanes and pirates for you. Just give me the good old farm. Great, Solomon says. Get your tractors out in the field because that's where the work is going to be done. If you sit around watching the rain and waiting for the windstorm to pass, you may never plant your fields. So get out, sow your seeds, work long days, morning to evening. And yes, it's true. You have no control over the harvest. You do your part, but at the end, you are left dependent on the elements. You don't actually know if this year is going to be a bumper crop or whether the farm is going to go bust, but you pull the tractors out of the barn and you get to work anyway. My brother-in-law was a farmer in southern Saskatchewan for many years, and I remember visiting one summer in July. It was six or seven weeks before the harvest would begin. And he got talking about that phrase, the farmer who bets the farm. And he pointed out that, that farming is a precarious life Every year, the farmer literally bets the farm. He goes out early in the spring and he spends literally hundreds of thousands of dollars on seed and fertilizer and pesticides and keeping the equipment running with absolutely no guarantee. One summer with no rain and they are finished. One summer with too much rain and they're done. So the farmer bets the farm every spring. And we hear the teacher say to this young adult is simply this, get off your butt and get to work. Ship your grain, get your goods to market, get your tractor out onto the fields. Because if you sit around watching the wind and the storm clouds on the horizon, you won't succeed. If you wait till every I is dotted and every T is crossed, if you wait till the stars align and majority opinion is with you, if you wait till every question is asked and answered, you may never make your move. Is there risk? Of course there is risk. There is mystery, there is doubt, 
there are questions. In chapter 11, verse 5, some translations talk about the Spirit coming into the, the baby in the mother's womb. And it's like if you can explain how the Spirit enters the child in its mother's womb, then you can explain mysteries that only God understands. But there are times that you're simply called to step out in faith without having all the answers. Get your boats in the water. Now, the second phrase is going to be shorter. It's more straightforward. Live like today was your last. Live like today was your last. Give your best years to the master. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning at verse 7, it says, Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you're young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body for youth and vigor are meaningless. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come. What the teacher is saying is you who are young, be happy in the days of your youth. And here is that key word that I keep harping on, vigorous young men. It's the same phrase used of young warriors, at the peak of your youthful strength. You see, you could read Ecclesiastes as a book and spiral into despondency and despair. You could basically conclude, you know what, life really sucks. The wisest and the wealthiest man on earth has tried it all, and he says it's nothing more than smoke. So what purpose, what meaning, what joy can I possibly find in this life? Or you can take the advice of the teacher, and you can lift your eyes to the eternal purposes of God and then re-enter everyday life with a completely new perspective on life. You think about the affairs of life through an entirely different frame of reference. There is a sovereign God who is orchestrating the details of our lives for His glory and for our joy. And He has told us that life will not always be like what we see in the here and now. A day is coming when the record will be set straight, when injustice will be righted, when sin and death and sickness and sorrow will be put behind us forever. And armed with that knowledge, you jump into life with abandon. You embrace every moment that you have been given to follow your heart. You may not have control over the day of your birth or the day of your death, but you do have today. In verse 10, verse 7 rather, which verse am I in? In the middle of that passage we just read, it says, life is sweet. So walk in the full daylight of the Spirit of God shining over your life. It, it brought to mind the blessing from Numbers chapter 6, that Old Testament blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Walk in the full daylight of God's blessing. 
Let the word of God and the spirit of God shine onto your path and see life as the great adventure that it is. And if you live many years, the average age in Canada now is 82 years old, 80 for men and 84 for women, then rejoice in every one of those days. You see, the preacher is pushing back on the when and if type of thinking that stymies so much of true living. I'll get about to enjoying my life when. When I get married. When I have kids. When the kids finally leave. When I change jobs. When I get a different boss. When I get different employees. I could be happy if only. If only I could win the lottery. If only I had been born at a different time or a different place or into a different family. If only I had a better home, a better car, a better job. If only, if only, if only. And what the teacher says is, no, young man, no, rejoice today in the days of your youth and make it your determination that you will drain every ounce of life out of every day. I remember so well, March 3rd, 1980, I was sitting in the bleachers watching a state championship basketball game in Salida, Colorado. The game came to a halt and a voice came over the loudspeaker saying, Mark Birch, please come to the athletic director's office for an emergency phone call. I got down out of those bleachers and I made my way across the court. It felt like every eye in the room was looking at me. I think the game began going again. And as I got into that office, I don't remember anybody who was in that room, but I remember these words, Mark, your dad is dead. I had no frame of reference for that. I had just seen my dad a few hours earlier, healthy and strong. He was only 49 years old. How could he possibly be dead? But he was. A heart attack in an instant, he was gone. I remember so well the fall of 1985 arriving for my last year at Bible school at Briarcrest out in Saskatchewan and arriving there on campus to be met with the greetings before the days of cell phones and internet. Did you hear that Rod died this morning? I had no frame of reference for that conversation. My friend Rod, who was just 23 years old, that I had seen two days earlier in Kelowna, BC, as I was driving from Calgary to Karenport, he was driving from Kelowna to Calgary, and he never made it to the end of his trip. A head-on car accident between Revelstoke and Golden took his life. You see, we do not know which day will be our last. So in the words of Tim McGraw's song, live as though you were dying. Let's pour our lives out in sacrifice for those we love and for the cause of the kingdom. Let's invest in things that are going to outlive us and let's fall to sleep at night knowing that if we don't wake up in the morning, we're happy with how we spent this last day of our lives. This is a message that is so desperately needed in the church today. I firmly believe that Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the planet because we have seen and tasted and understood what God's good plan for his children is. We've got the roadmap for a life of flourishing in relationships, in life, and most importantly, with our Creator Himself.
And it is a not a naive Pollyanna denial that life can sometimes be very hard. That's true. But it is a sober, quiet resilience that is anchored in an understanding that there is nothing that comes my way in this life that is not filtered through the loving hands of my Father in heaven. And while we may not see in the moment of darkness what God's good purposes are, we can fully trust him. Dwight Moody was a pastor back in the 1800s. He was an evangelist as well. He founded the Moody Church in Chicago, and Moody Bible Institute bears his name. And he is famous, perhaps most famous for this one quote, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. You see, Moody himself received those words when he was about 35. He was over in the UK doing some evangelistic work and an older brother came alongside and challenged him with those very words, I have yet to see what the world could do, what God would do with a man fully devoted to him. So if the Lord tarries, and if the history books are written about our day, looking back, who are the men and women who will be recorded as those fearless souls who stepped out in great faith to follow the call of God? Men and women who decided to leave the world a better place than they found it. Men and women convinced that while, yes, this life is short, that it is to be exploited for every opportunity possible to advance the kingdom of God precisely because the days are dark. Ephesians 5. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Why is this so important? Well, you keep reading in chapter 12, tells us where we're headed. Solomon paints an incredible picture of the decline of our bodies, what he calls the evil years. And I'm not going to take time to read through that entire chunk. You can just scan through it, but it gives an incredibly accurate picture of what happens to our bodies as we age. Chapter 12, verse 1 to 7, he describes the mind that begins to get cloudy as mental clarity is fading. The head and the hands that start to shake or tremble and our legs that grow weak and unsure. That we lose our teeth. That our eyes grow dim. The, the cataracts pull a foggy veil over our sight. Our hearing fades and sleep begins to evade us. We grow fearful of heights, fearful of the night. He says the almond tree blossoms. If you've seen an almond tree, it's snowy white blossoms, the white hair, if you have any left. The grasshopper that used to hop and jump around is now dragging himself along. In fact, even sexual desire grows weak. And ultimately, the silver cord is broken. The pump in the wheelhouse stops pumping. And we die. From dust we came and to dust we return. Now, that is not intended to be discouraging or disrespectful or making light of the aging process. Not at all. He is simply saying this is how life ends. Unless you are snatched away in the prime of your life, you inevitably will fight this very battle. So remember God now while you have your health and strength and vigor. Give him your best. Give him your first. So young adult, 
I told you at the start that you were a special target for this message, and not because I personally decided it was a weekend to pick on the youth, but because that's the emphasis of the text. The narrator writes with his son in mind, listen to the teacher, my son. Give your best years to your creator. Don't wait until all you have left are leftover dreams and unfulfilled visions. So we come back around to where we started. We're back now to the last few verses. Verses 9 to 14, where we are told that there is coming a day when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Where we will give an account for the way we lived our lives. And on that day, you don't want to stand before the king and have to say, I'm sorry, Lord, I wasted the life that you gave me. This final warning is actually worthy of a full series of messages unto itself. How do we walk into the courtroom of the heavenly Lord with any sense of confidence? The idea of standing before a holy God should be a fearful thought. To walk into that heavenly courtroom unprepared is indeed a fearful thing. In fact, what the Bible tells us is true is that there is not a man, woman, boy, or girl who will escape the guilty verdict. Lives will be placed in the balance and it will be the shortest conversation you have ever had. Is your life perfect? Answer is no. Have you sinned? Answer, yes. So what do you do with the just penalty for our sin is the question. And at that moment, what matters most is the name in which you approach the bench. Because you can approach the bench in your own name, in your own merits, in your own works, your own good deeds of serving the poor and caring for the sick and working hard to be a good person and hoping beyond hope that all your good deeds will outweigh the bad in your life. Or... You can throw yourself on the mercies of Jesus Christ, who is willing to walk into that courtroom with you as your righteous defense. Jesus Christ, who does not deny our guilt, who does not lightly dismiss our sin. Jesus Christ, who will acknowledge before the Father, it's true, this one is guilty. But then in that moment who steps between us and our righteous judge and says, but Father, this one's with me. Remember our plan from before the foundation of the world? We saw that they would have no way to rescue themselves. And so I took on human flesh to do what they couldn't do for themselves. I would live a sinless life they could not live. I would die the death that they deserved to die. My life would be given in exchange for theirs. And so, Father, I remind you, these ones are with me. They are mine their lives are hidden in my life. So when you look at them, Father, see me. And knowing that this is the conversation that we will one day absolutely have, knowing that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, what have you done with the offer of life that God has given to you? Have you surrendered to his offer of salvation? Have you given your life to the king of kings. And specifically to the implications of this text. 
Is the Spirit of God calling you into some great adventure that you need to say yes to? As we're wrapping up, a couple of New Testament texts came into my mind when I was studying this week. 1 Corinthians 13 says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things, or I put the ways of childhood behind me. You see, growing old just happens. You cannot help it. But growing up is a choice that we make. 1 Timothy 4 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In other words, you are never too young to start giving God your everything. You're never too young. So the question is this, will you step into the fullness of life that God offers you? What area of your life are you holding back from full surrender to the king? Is there some decision, some call, some new venture that you need to say yes to for the glory of God? Let me challenge you, in the spring of 2021, it's time. It's time for you to get your boat in the water. It's time for you to rejoice in today's opportunities. It's time for you to give your first and your best to the master. It's time for you to start investing this one life that you've been given. If you summarize it into four little words, don't waste your life. Let me pray for you. So Father, I pray for the men and women that are listening to this message knowing, Lord, that into every life there are joys and sorrows that come our way. And this book has unapologetically pointed out both, that there is so much about this life that is a mystery. It is hard to fathom the evil of our world and why bad things happen even to good people. And yet, Lord, we also see the flip side of that coin that this life has been given to us as a great adventure to live with all the gusto that we could pour into it under the glory of our King. And so, Lord, I pray for men and women in this season in particular, even particularly in the middle of this long pandemic that we have been locked away, that you would give us the resilience of heart and soul and mind and strength to lean in and to say, Lord, today I'm going to give you this day and live it as though it were my last for your glory and for my great joy that you would be exalted in how I have lived out my life, that in my workplace, in my family, in my business, in my education, in my ministry opportunities, that you are given first and best of all that I have to offer you. And Lord, in particular, I pray for young men and women who right now in those early years of their life, in their late teens, in their 20s, even their early 30s, are making all the decisions that are going to be shaping the direction of their future. I pray, Lord, that you would anchor them solidly into your word and by your spirit, that they would not make foolish decisions, but that they would surrender themselves entirely to you and say, oh God, I want to be that man. I want to be that woman whose life is fully devoted to the King. Lord, would you seal the decisions that are being made even in this moment? Men and women who are saying, it's time for me to step out in faith. I will say yes to that new opportunity that you are putting in front of me, Lord. Would you bless them? Would you give us great joy, Lord? We commit these things to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.